0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Pals Podcast.
1: I'm your host, George Boutsalas. And I'm Ricky Liordi. And this week, we had Brad Smith on the podcast. Some of you might recognize him from The Big Bake, Chopped, The Food Network, Breakfast Television. Or you might recognize him from The Bachelor or his time spent in the CFL. George, why don't you tell him what we spoke about? So... Honestly, I, that's I, we could not stop laughing. Brad gave us some some
0: stories about uh, his time growing up playing football and and his stint uh, in the CFL. He uh, he shared kind of his time growing up and uh, and then we kind of got from there into his time and how he ended up on The Bachelor. Yeah, I mean even if you're not a fan of the Bachelor shows, the stories are honestly hilarious. Uh, even how he ended up on the show is pretty crazy. And then we just kind of dug into what he's been doing now, like his time on The Big Bake and, and Food Network and how he got his start with breakfast television. And then his uh, his two restaurants that uh, that he's opened and how he's dealing with COVID and how it's impacted his businesses. It was a lot of fun, great conversation. He's honestly a funny guy. And uh, yeah, it was, was a great chat. Really enjoyed it. And we hope you, do, you will as well. Give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Ilberry & Goose, truly unique, entirely Canadian. Um, guys, honestly support this these, this company i cannot say enough good things about them to make amazing amazing canadian-made products uh from home bed and bath clothes uh sweats throw pillows they got they got it all uh check out the website www.ilberryandgoose.com or at and goose. my pal what do we say lfg let's go <laughs>
2: Thanks for, thanks for having me. Oh, pleasure. pleasure. Are you guys like twins or something? Is this what's going on? We Gosh, I can't
1: believe you just said I look like him. That's an insult.
2: I know. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm trying to start off off the bat on a good foot. But no, the cor- <laughs> the quarantine look has affected you two where you're actually like, growing together in looks. Yeah, like,
0: man. The beards are getting out of control. I don't often have a beard because I have this hair. So when I have a beard, it's like a lot going on.
2: That's um like and Jesus actually Jesus
0: I have to, like, clean it up because I'm getting back into the office a bit and back to work. So, uh, but, yeah. It's, uh, it's, we are good friends. I mean, we're best friends, though. But, yeah. No, no relation, thankfully.
2: Okay. I, yeah. <laughs> well,
1: So, Brad, tell us, what have you been up to during this whole uh, COVID quarantine stuff?
2: Well, you know, just, fuck, growing my hair out. Um, no, it's been, it's been interesting because, uh, you know, I'm in the food industry as well. So, uh, when we started off this, I started, like, everybody else, with kind of a shock. I had to close down my restaurants, both of them within about 18 hours of each other, uh, get all our legal legal documents done so our employees could go get their EI and make sure that they were taken care of first. So we started off on, like, the worst foot you could. But, you know, given that everyone's going through this, it's kind of you kind of just got to throw your hands up in the air and say, what more can I do? I'm doing the best that I can. And you just got to wait it out, to be honest with you.
0: How have you um, – and I'm, I don't want to mispronounce it. Is it – how do you say it? The burger one yeah, Assembly, and that's that's in Shembley, Assembly Assembly
2: Assembly Assembly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there was a nineteen
2: twenties speakeasy. <laughs> Come down to Assembly. No. So
0: is that that's where the location is?
2: Correct? yeah So we have uh, I have Blemme, which is my burger bar, and then I have Chef's Table, which is like a clean eating space uh, right beside it. um So yeah, I mean. I think most people would be much more of a dire situation, but I've kind of just tried to mentally sit, like understand that my job is to keep the ship there after the storm. My job is not to try to sink the ship during the storm. And while this is going on, everyone's like, you know, no one has an answer and even the experts that we're looking to, everyone's contradicting each other. So there's no, you know, we don't know what to do. So just trying to like, calm down, keep the focus, keep the restaurant there or both the restaurants so that they're there for my employees when when the time's right and not overthink yeah. this too much because everyone's fuck, going you know a lot of people are drowning with delivery and then some people can't even open and you know there's just no right thing to do right now so everyone's kind of just sitting there and being like well what the fuck's the answer and the actual thing is we don't know what it is yeah, right it's now just
1: hang hang tight and uh, try and wait out the storm almost
2: all so you have, can do really
1: have you guys are you uh, in the location you're in because that's there's a lot of stalls and vendors there like is it
0: can you are you guys open for delivery or is it governed by the whole building? How does was how that or just
2: made a decision not to open? We we decided as a group of 15 vendors in that hall to 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 close down because what we're doing is, you know, there's a lot of financial restrictions against us, one being that we're a franchise fee in that hall. So if you're looking at doing deliveries, right, where they're taking 30, 20% of your order, which is already crushing your fucking margin as a restaurant, because you earn nine to seventeen percent margin at best. Yeah. Um take away thirty percent of that right off the bat, take away eight and a half on top of that. We can't do delivery. That was our thing. And we knew that and we made that call because and even restaurants out there that are doing delivery, they're getting fucking hammered right now. Because you're taking yeah. away so much percentage, but at the same time you can't get mad at these Uber Eats skip the dishes because that's their business model that we all signed yep. up for. So I hear a lot of people complaining like, Oh fuck, we're getting gouged, but Okay. It's been like that. Hire yeah. your own cars. Do your own delivery free. You'll get even more massacred that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because then, the then you incur the overhead. Then you got to pay the wages and then you're not even sure you're going to be able to justify with the income if you're oh. on a own platform or
2: anything. You yeah? know. Well, and imagine that, right? So you have individual delivery times. Well, how many fucking delivery drivers are you going to need? And then it's, it's not that. Are you going to say, well, people pre-order and then they can order for a specific time and then we do mass delivery and then you're missing out on how many people. So again, it's like you know, as a restaurant owner, you're sitting here being like, Yeah, give me the handgun and the bottle of Jack, and we'll solve this in five minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> Brad, well, you? there's no right answer,
1: <laughs> right? Answer
2: there's, none. there's none. Brad, <laughs> were
1: you always uh, a food guy, or did you become a food guy based off the Food Network and those kind of
2: opportunities? So funny enough, uh, when you're on Food Network, you got to downplay it, right? You can't say that I love food because you're not a chef and you'll never be taken as seriously as the people that are already on there, right? So my first year in the CFL that I could afford to live without, you know, because you don't get paid. You, you get paid in, you know, Loblaws coupons and fucking free, free, free <laughs> yeah. cleats. Ca- Canadian tire dollars. Yeah, it's the CFL. We used to have all the guys from the States, the cash flow low league. They always say, man, I'll come up here, man. You guys got no cash, man. are like, yeah. true. So, really oh, so the first year that I, um that I could afford to, 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 to not work in the off season. I didn't know how to cook. I was sitting there and I started watching uh, Michael Smith, funny chef at home on Food Network. And that's how I learned how to cook. And then I fell in love with food and, the, the ending up in Food Network was just kind of, it happened. It was just uh, like a really lucky bounce. I had no plans, but I've always loved food and it just kind of transitioned in. So then
0: the, the, uh, the two local restaurants you have now, that spun off after your experience in these things, these forays into food, and then you kind of opened them up. How did the idea come about? Like, you have an
2: executive chef you work with, or is it, was it your ideas? Yeah, so, you know, I was sitting there on Chopped, on and I had all these people coming up to me being, you know, asking me basically the same question, how would you get on, what are you going to do, and then I was going out to all these restaurants now because I had all these friends in the food industry and eating all this, you know, I wasn't just crushing Donnie's at the drive-thru anymore, so I got to experience, uh, you know, like the culinary aspects of Toronto and Canada, uh, and then I just kind of realized, like, I have this food network platform, and I'm an entrepreneur by heart, a finance guy by trade. So why not just, you know, go into the worst industry and see if we can lose all our money? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> no, I just, you know, I I just wanted to use one to do the other because my thoughts were that TV is not going to last forever. I'm going to get kicked off before I'm ready to leave. So I wanted to, you know, back end myself with some sort of, you know, fi- like job from this. Okay. So, uh, it, it just turned out to be the great a great opportunity. What's your favorite dish at either of your spots? Oh, well, we have, uh, we got voted 2019 best burger in Toronto by Toronto life. So our burger is fucking unbelievable. But, um, to be honest with you, I've got a chef, his name's Chris DeSando. Anything he cooks, like I go in and I'll be just make me something. And I just get happy being in that environment, seeing chefs do what they do and taking them out of the monotony of making like the regular menu items and saying like, just make something for it. it's And it's amazing for like my friends to come and get that, you know, it's a, the best part about this whole restaurant experience was just playing around with with Chris and seeing what we could come up with.
1: Yeah, inspiring different things on the menu. Oh I'm yeah, trying out sure. different things. The yeses, the noes, the
2: maybes. Oh yeah, and then it, it, honestly, it reminds me a lot of football because when you're behind the line, it's a lot like the locker room. You know, all the guys talk. They have their way of doing things. They have their you know their uh, superstitions and stuff. And then when the you know when lunch rush starts, that's their game time. Those people are watching them play, and it—it it honestly, I, the first three months of my first restaurant, I was on the uh, the line every day making fries, and I remember yeah. people walking by being like looking at me, being like, "Isn't that guy? Fuck, that guy's lost it all," <laughs> and I'm sitting there like, you know. But just like any entrepreneur, right? You want to get behind, you want to be. It. And I'm sitting yeah. there just tossing fries, living the dream. Everyone's, oh my God, that guy, he's never going to be. I saw that guy on TV a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. weren't you? Don't you host Chopped and now you're chopping fucking French fries? Yes. The my problem. problem? <laughs> I was just giving off some side fries. It was, you know what's a great thing, though, is like you realize um, when you hold a certain stature in somebody else's eyes, they never want to see you drop below that. So for a lot of people, it's it's an ego thing on their part. It's not for me because I don't give a shit. It's my fucking business. I'll you know get behind. I'll clean the ground. I'll take the garbage. You don't. It's what I'm there for. But people see you and they're like, oh, they have you as this you know TV guy or sports guy or whatever they want. They see you tossing fries and they automatically think, fuck, his life must suck. And you're like, <laughs> when when did it become about not just being able to get a paycheck and get by? Yeah. Yeah,
0: but as, as an entrepreneur and, and a business owner, too, you want to know everything that every aspect of your business. Right. And and I mean, even to that point, which I was going to ask you, like, we are going to I love it. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> assembly chef are a pretty new concept from what I understand in Toronto. So that's also a new business model. So you really got to understand your business, the ins and outs to make sure you're making money and you're sustainable and you can grow and all that.
2: Yeah. yeah, to be honest with you the finance that I have done before which is mainly consulting for for companies that go public and fundraising and stuff like that it's a long way from food industry man. If you I believe if you're a business person and you can get behind a line of a kitchen and see the functions of how the restaurant industry works it's going to make you the best person because you literally go from thinking about macro in finance to just the most micro things behind the line. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's, it just reminds me of that locker room vibe. So it, it just came naturally to me to want to step in behind the line and, you know, join the team if you want to use that analogy, right?
1: Yeah, you've mentioned football a lot. What's your the highlight of your football career? Like, I, I played high football in high school. We were three-time uh, Metro here. Bowl champs. Oh, you? Relax. Yes. Here. One yeah, point. I went to St. Mike's. So, you went, oh, you went to St. Mike's. Yeah, yeah. I'm a few years younger oh. than you, but yeah, we were the
2: the three Pete. I was two of the three years. Really? Yeah. I wasn't
1: much good, but yeah, starting uh, starting safety, my final year.
2: To be, to be honest with you, my my favorite years of football still come from St. Andrews. My last two years, grade 12 and 13, at St. Andrews College, because uh, I graduated with the guy who became the best quarterback in CIS history. We had an unbelievable running back, and then I was a four or five in high school. So we were, I mean, oh, man, speedster. We were untouchable in high school. All I did was run a, like a fly, every freaking pattern. And my quarterback, who was a monster at the time, went to Team Canada, played Team Canada. He, he was the only quarterback in our high school league who threw throw over 40 yards. So yeah. people think I'm lying about this, but I had 2,600 yards in 13 games. Oh, so man. I swear to God, it was like a video game. And it wasn't because I was good. I was just fast. So I literally, my quarterback just dropped back, fucking so launch a rocket, and then... Uh,
0: Rick, buddy, where are you right now? This guy's cell signal is like he's from '97 90, right now. What's going on, Val? He's in upstate New York.
2: <laughs> yeah. he's, in think, chi- he's in chick
0: I think he's going to ask who your quarterback
2: was, but uh, who knows? This guy, like, dude, get it together. Uh, we, had, we had a good kid. He's now the head coach of uh, Laurier, Mike Faults. Ended up breaking all the, uh, you know, like the – you ended up being the uh, the the leading passer in the history of the CIS and just a stud. Yeah, like, yeah. And then
0: uh, and then you went on to play at Queens for a bit after. That yeah. was your before before you went into the, the CFL.
2: Yeah, went went to Queens as a eighteen year old. Was an eighteen year old all Canadian. Don't know how I did it because I was fucking hammered most of the year. <laughs> Honestly, people ask me to this day. I, I I was a I think to this day the youngest all Canadian in the history of CIS. Don't know how I did it. I was, a, I was a,
1: well, my we, shoes we were never Western. tied. I was
2: that much of a mess. Yeah,
1: we, we went to and We can imagine how much, uh, how, how many times you were late to class in the morning.
2: Yeah, late to class. I never went to class. <laughs> but that's what sucked about Queens, man, is people be like, oh, you athletes. I'm like, no, they don't, they don't care about us at a smart school. Yeah.
1: Like,
2: I walk in late and they're like, oh, Mr. Smith, thank God you showed up for the first time in four months. test." <laughs> Queens, if you don't have an engineering jacket you're not cool at queens you're an engineering jacket otherwise yeah well and that's the thing is like in actuality where they didn't treat the athletes like other schools do it actually worked out because it made you actually pass the t- <laughs> pass your courses. you yeah, have, have
1: to do some work yeah. you have
2: to crunch down on the books. so like i remember i had a 56.5 at christmas of my first year and they're like well you're gonna go on academic probation and i was like what, is, what the fuck does that mean and they're like oh well you can't play football next year and i was like but I don't want to be at school if we can't. And then I had to get my grades over sixty-five, so it happened. I didn't want it to. I didn't want to go to class. Yeah. I was just ne- and not because I hate school. I just, I, I was never a school. Yeah. It didn't orient with me. I was not like I hated being in class. I'd always be in the back. I always felt left out. And then I'd have to like act up. I get kicked out of class. And... Yeah.
0: Yeah, I definitely. Grew up. I was, I was same way for me. I mean, I went to Western with Rick, but I mean. Like, the first couple of years, I was, you're nervous, you want to keep up with the grades. And after that, I was like, man, I just want to get back, get in the real world, start working. I just didn't resonate as much with that. I wasn't, wasn't someone who could just, like, sit, disciplined and, and read and memorize
2: notes and all that stuff. So, definitely the same way there. Well, no, and to, to be honest with you guys, I mean, I look at myself now. It's, what, fucking uh, since 07. So, it's 13 years since I graduated, right? When have I ever used my history degree outside of Jeopardy? Right? <laughs> For real, like, I can fucking crush Jeopardy, but it's not like I'm sitting around here waiting to talk about Gothic architecture, you know? It's like...
1: (laughs) I Man, I can relate to that so much. I took a program at Western called the MIT program, and it was based around Karl Marx. And still, to this day, I could not not tell you much about Marxism. Like, no, no one's ever asked me about it. And that is the, like, governing idea of this program. And, like, half of our class got kicked out after first year... I'm like two of my like good friends got kicked out of the program and i made it in i'm like oh shit since i made it in i guess i gotta stay or else the people are gonna think i'm stupid and got kicked out so
2: let me just roll with it for the next three years really and all, and all you had to do was really when you got woken up in class yell out communist manifesto that's all you had to
1: do. <laughs> basically i was just uh, i was just going with the, uh, the flow of it man it was do you know those essay writing courses where you just start writing and it's like, I hope I figure it out at the end of the sentence, like a little Michael Scott reference?
2: The best one, and I wish I knew any of my teachers because I'd never met a single one in university, but uh, <laughs> I remember like I would sit down in the exams, you know, your last question is the big exam question. I remember like functionally making up quotes because I was so bad at exams. And like <laughs> if I needed a quote to fit my argument, I would make it up and then make up someone who said it and say, okay, well, if these guys are going to go fact check me, let them fact check me. You're just whole crossing your fingers that they don't. Oh, you talk about absolute dummies in university and intell- <laughs> intellect-wise, I was, I've never been a dummy, but I just, when I don't like groove or jive with something, it's like I go the exact opposite. So when I say that I went to like 30 classes, maybe in five years, maybe. <laughs> maybe. yeah, <not>. Maybe. <laughs> But I passed, and then somehow I had passed with honor, hey, so I don't know.
1: Nah, that's all, that's all you need. All you need is that piece of paper at the end of the day.
2: I don't even know where it is, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Someone's like, oh, where's your Queen's degree? And I was like, I couldn't tell you if I even got one. Like, <laughs> shit. Me and
1: my mom are all uh, – I know it's at my parents' house somewhere, and I used to have it underneath my bed at my condo. And I've moved condos so many times that me and my mom argue. I'm like, Mom, I swear I brought it up here. She's like, no, you didn't. i Look, that's like a $50,000 piece of paper. You might want to find it, please. Like, yeah. My brother's is like framed downstairs on the wall. Meanwhile, like nobody even cares where mine is. Like, <laughs> yeah.
2: oh, yeah. bes-
1: bes-
2: Besides your brother's, is just a picture of you eating pasta or something. <laughs>
1: yeah, some- something. No, my old hockey pickers. That's it. Oh. Brad, so take us past past Queens. You're in the CFL. Give us some highlights. You know, being drafted is that kind of one of the the top highlights cuz I think what, only 80 people get drafted in the CFL or 90 people?
2: 40 per year. Um, yeah. the the it was a good day, but it was a really sad day cuz I was I was projected number 2 and I had when I say I was a dummy, it was I have a really hard time early on, not now, but but till I was about 25, 26, if someone told me to do something a certain way, I would dramatically do it the opposite way. And <laughs> I, it, was, it, it was just a case of, like, if you have somebody who learns by their own mistakes, that was me. You could have a case of someone who looks at other people and be like, oh, I don't want to do that. Don't no, me, it was like, let's fuck up and see if I can. So when I went to the combine and did my testing, I was so out of shape. I was so uh, unprepared. And I was just, oh, you know, I've been so good on natural talent. It's just going to take me through this. Now, I ended up running, the, like, the fastest combine uh, time that year. And I put it up a good amount of times, but I just, I didn't look like a player that was like a three-time All-Canadian. And I got drafted 43rd. So it was a huge ego shot, and it was exactly what I needed. Because before that, I'd never been kind of put in my place and told, you know, fucking get in the right path or ship out. And I was lucky to get drafted by the Argos, who still had Mike O'Shea at the time. And Mike O'Shea, when you get onto a Mike O'Shea team, and I assume it's the same in Winnipeg now, there's a there's a saying: FIFO, fit in or fuck off. And literally, greatest terminology ever, greatest leadership I ever had. And when I walked in that first year as a as a rookie, I was beaten by everybody. I was embarrassed as a football player, and it really took me two years of playing the CFL to understand that if I could even play against these guys because as Canadian kids we're like oh you know our positions are safe when we come up that jump to the American level is something that you just can't explain to Canadian kids like run a, run a route and then run a route against Arlen Bruce or run a against, route against Fred Stamps or run a route against Ben Coon you will see how far away you are so then for the next two years it became about okay how do I survive how do I get paid how do I keep on the roster so that I can prolong my adolescence and then I started actually fucking working hard
0: what was the aside from that, was that would you say that's the biggest reality check, like uh, wake up call reality check? Is like going up against those guys who played American ball, or was there like one particular moment
2: where you remember, like, holy shit, like I, I gotta step up or I'm, I'm in trouble here? It's just, you know, like it's a casualty of me being fast my whole life and not really having to work on my body and stuff. I had good hands and I was fast, so I step in the CFL. Well, now everyone is fast and has good hands, but I didn't have the physicality. So when you go up against an NCAA DB that's gone up against top-tier opponents, fuck, if they don't manhandle you, put you on the ground, they just bitch you out. And if you're a rookie and they see that you're doing that, they don't care about penalties. They will embarrass you. So my first 10 days in Argos training camp, I mean, I not only thought I was cut, I thought I was never going to make it, and I thought that, like, football was over, and I was getting to the point where I was almost crying every night, embarrassed. Jeez. But, But you come in as a draft pick, your dad owns the fucking excuse my language my your dad's the president of the alouettes your dad used to be the commissioner your dad has now fired the offensive coordinator that you're got drafted by and so you just don't you have this aura about you like who the fuck is this kid and we're gonna put him in his place and so it doubled up yeah but lucky yeah. enough i i can take the the shit so i got through it but dude it was it's just a jump that you're not prepared for unless you're probably on the lines o-line or d-line skill positions yeah, it's, like it's not even the same
1: yeah, it's like you had a target on your back, too, right? Oh, God, yeah. Do you think that, like, and then I guess from
0: as, – as those – I've lost, that's not the jump, like, that, too far ahead, but has that stuff kind of translated? Do you think from that moment – you said it helped you, like, grow up a little bit, but, like, has it translated to, like, your maybe your work ethic now or how you take things now in stride? Like, did you take stuff from then, or is it – was it kind of just that was more pertaining to your football career and, like, your – I don't know, your drive on the field, if you will?
2: It made me it made me way more competitive. It made me a better player. And then by the last two years, I ended up starting. So it was it was, you know, it it transitioned well, it didn't really transfer into the discipline of my work life, because I've always been the same. I don't work very hard, but I work very smart, and very efficiently. But when I do work hard in that moment, I work like, but I'm really lazy in a lot of aspects. Um, But it's just I found where like Bill Gates, he always like I'm not gonna hire a lazy person. Uh, sorry, I'm not gonna hire a smart, hardworking person because a lazy person will find the better way and quicker way to do the job. And that's just kind of the way I've got. I, I can work hard, but I, I just it's not it's not one of those disciplined things that was made in me. Like if I want to work hard, I really have to go against everything that's in my head because I was a, kind to- of a, a spoiled oh. kid. Who, yeah. yeah, I was kind of a really spoiled kid who got everything they wanted as a kid, and so my discipline was never there. It's just all natural. And so to come in now and be like, oh, I work hard as an adult, it makes me feel good about myself. But it's because I had none of those (laughs) mechanisms as a kid to want to work hard because you're just like, fuck, I'm good at everything. (laughs) (laughs) I hope it always ends up like this. Then going to CFL and you're like, oh, no, I'm terrible compared to all these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So So, go ahead, Rick. Sorry.
1: I know I was going to jump a little bit forward. So uh, after after CFL, obviously – came the bachelor and I've had probably about 10 different people message me and say, how, just tell us the story of how it happened. Like did they just pluck you out and say, you know what, you're it. Or do you apply? How did it work? Cause you were the first
2: in Canada, right? Yeah. They had the lowest expectations for the first one. That's how I fucking, <laughs> um, you no, know, to be honest with you, it's, it's a, it's an absolute fluke and people don't believe me, but my buddy, um, was walking with his girlfriend at the time, downtown Toronto, going into the Eaton center. Um, and if you know Toronto, the Bay and the Eaton Centre, where that pathway is across Main yeah, yeah. Street, they're crossing there. They crossed one of her good girlfriends, and that was the casting director of The Bachelor. And they stopped and talked. And they, what are you doing? And she said, I'm casting Bachelor. And then my buddy, in the typical football buddy way, goes, whoa, wait, you got your guy? And they're like, <laughs> well, you know, we've, we've auditioned about 1,500. We're down to six, but we think we've got our guy. He's like, oh, you don't have him, though. I got your guy. <laughs> and he put a sales pitch on right there. And, you know, he said, you know, he's a he's a CFL guy, just retired. His dad's a senator. He's got this because they look for a story and then to put you in. Right. It doesn't matter how good of a guy you are. It's like the backs. They want that first five minutes of like introducing Brad Smith, your bachelor. And then like the, you know, his dad's this and you're that. And you were, you know, it's 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 fucking it's it's egotistical. But that's what they they need. And without my buddy and his girlfriend walking at that moment, I would have never they would have never called me. He gave, he gave them my number and they called me when I was on vacation with my family.
0: That's so crazy. Just cause your buddy hyped you up. Like wing, uh, I guess we'll get into whether it was a good move or, or uh, how you felt about it. But I like, just, by wingmaning you and, this, and hyping you up there, you got, got
2: on the show just like that. Well, this, this guy is one of the greatest people I've ever met. He was just at my house the other night because with COVID, uh, his wife went in labor and they couldn't have be in the same room at the same time. So this guy is, he's, one of the funniest guys I've ever met, but I know when he stopped at that moment and she said bachelor and his head clicked in, he w- he went fucking ballistic because he was like, no, I'm going to and like without him. Like he sold it. He's like, no, no, you don't understand. My friend, he was in the CFL. His dad's a senator. He went to private school. He's the easier guy. He's got the, he's whole, got
0: the whole package.
2: <laughs> and I was just like, you know, as long as they have mediocre expectations, I, I went in for the first audition. He actually took me in to the first audition when they were down to six guys. I snuck in the back of a hotel because they didn't want anyone to see me. And I was so hungover that when I sat in the, they sit you in the seat and they have like four cameras and like 10 people asking you questions and you're just sitting there, you know, just with the light on you. I fucking was so hungover wearing this gray, long Henley shirt, just sweating through everything. (laughs) Just literally being like, oh guys, what the fuck is, you know, in my head. But then just putting on all these cheesy answers. And uh, then it was down to three, down to two and I, I beat out the the other two guys, and I, I didn't I didn't understand why at the time, but it's just, they were just really looking for a normal guy. And I wasn't a star in the CFL. I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't really have a huge repertoire that would demand me being, uh, what, what's the word, um, someone you'll never get, like, a, you know.
0: Yeah, like, you want it to be
2: a realistic thing, so go watch a show. It's like, oh, yeah. that's a guy that, like, yeah. yeah. They wanted a real Canadian kid, too, and and when, when guys meet me now, they meet me because I'm The Bachelor, and they, they're waiting to see this, you know, fucking tool shed of a douchebag come into their... <laughs> it's true. It's like, it's the yeah, thing no, you'll no. fight... The, you'll fight against it your whole life, because they want you to be a fucking douche, and trust me, I was earlier on in my life, but um, <laughs> it's just, like, the, the reason I was so comfortable with it is because I know myself, and I'm just, like, a normal dude, and all my friends will tell you, I came off the CFL and. I have no problem telling everybody I bartended at Earl's for seven months and people are like, well, how'd they pick you when you were a bartender? And I said, well, it's not like I didn't have opportunities to do other things. I just, after the CFL, I'd been fucked with so much for seven years in my head that I just didn't want to think. And I just wanted a nice job where I met people. And so when they, when they picked me, they were like, okay, like, what are we going to tell people you are? And I said, well, I'm bartending right now, but like, I have a, and they were like, oh, don't tell people you're a bartender this now. Like, <laughs> I'm just a normal guy. And that's what girls, I think, will respect if they sit. Like, it's I'm not up here trying to be a showy asshole, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Was it when – so like you're, you said when you were sitting in that chair there and even the cameras were on, and it was like a little bit nerve-wracking. Once you get picked and you get on, and you're like, now you're in the show. That's, that's worse. The moment. How, like, are you
2: like shitting your pants, or were you comfortable from the onset? Shitting your pants would be like a fucking understatement because and there's like I've had a lot of concussions. So my memory sometimes jogs, but I will never forget that first night because if you've ever watched the show, it's this fucking massive mansion, even in the States. Same thing. And they literally have like 20 guys just fucking out there, like with with a with a hose, hosing the driveway down so that it'll get that shine on it. So it'll look good on camera. And they're doing it. I'm in a tux. There's 18 fucking cameras around. Some are in the like the woods, like doing a long shot, and they're like, "Okay, Brad, we're ready to go," and I'm like, "Go where?" And they're like, oh, "No, we're ready to roll," and I'm like, "So what do I do?" And they're like, "Oh, don't worry, just be yourself." And I'm like, "No, guys, that's never worked out for me before." Like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: but like my I, coach told me to be myself, and I got dusted on the on the line Yeah. day at camp.
2: Yeah, no, they're like, oh, just be yourself. I'm like, trust me, guys. With girls, that's never worked out. I'm a very shy guy before this, and I don't, like, break the ice. I don't go up to girls. Like, that's not my thing. But after night one, where that first girl comes up to you, you realize, sad to say this, but it's true, it's a paycheck. It's a job. You have to get through it. And your job is to take those 25 girls and get one to the end. And so night one, as flustered as you are, as uncomfortable as it is, it clicks in pretty quick you're like oh like guys like this like um, it's a job i get a good, good paycheck and i gotta fulfill what i need to fulfill on this but at the same time you just you can't prepare you can't prepare for 18 cameras to be around you when you're a fucking cfl player riding the pine before
0: what i was gonna say what's the oh, yeah, yeah. like what's the coolest thing about this being on the show that like the behind the scenes that most people wouldn't see is there's something that's like Despite all the cameras and all the attention is there something to you that were like wow this is sweet like this is cool
2: and maybe people don't see it as much on the tv screen oh god i mean the the best part of it is traveling with the crew like i remember the first day again because i'm you know people want to put you in this box like you know they the first day i you know i'm getting off first class flights and i'm getting into limos and going to expensive hotels and you know, I'm seeing all the crew guys with the, you know, the lights, the cameras, everything like that, going in separate vehicles, going to the same hotel in fucking shitty sprinter vans. And the first night I was like, well, why can't I just go hang out with the crew guys? And they're like, oh, we, you know, separate you. We want to treat you well. And I was like, no. no. So for the rest of the trip, for 72 days, I spent the whole time with the camera guys, the sound guys. We traveled in the economy, like we called them executive toilets right behind the back of the... To you know, Paris and Barbados and they really became when you weren't with the girls, the best part of the whole fucking trip was, you know, these camera guys who in my industry camera guys are legends. Like shoot for 14 hours, party for eight hours, wake up for five <laughs> minutes. And just really good guys. So the best part about the whole thing outside outside of the show was just getting that camaraderie because while you're shooting it, no one knows who you are. You're not famous to anybody. So, yeah, you're walking around with cameras following you, but you're just Joe Schmo, And it's really like the last two months of your life you get to live without anybody being like, hey, uh, you know, how was uh, making out with that girl with the, you know, like. His... Yeah, the, the typical thing. Yeah, yeah. What's it like to make out with seven girls? Pretty nice. <laughs> uh, do you have another question to follow up? Like, hey, what the is...
0: What's it like breathing <laughs> air? You know, no,
2: the answer to that, I can't help you. Like, yeah, yeah. What's it like breathing air? Good. You need it to live. Kind of the same thing as making out with seven girls. <laughs> what was that I was gonna say how long was the show the whole film like your whole time from start to finish yeah so ours was just over two months so about nine weeks
1: okay what was the hardest part about it like obviously besides the the obvious picking eliminating 24 women to pick one what's like behind is it not being able to talk to your friends because unless I'm wrong I think they take away your phone too right
2: I mean that's really hard because uh, they took they took away my phone I know they don't do it the same now um but yeah no they took away my phone they they don't let you have email inner like access that you don't look at a computer you barely watch television i got to watch uh, movies um, but the hardest part of the process and funny enough i'll segue it off you saying picking the girls that's actually not hard because just like if you guys were to go um into a house party you always gravitate towards like the one or two girls that you're attracted to and you get along with So, the hardest part of that show is actually being on dates that you don't want to be on with girls who are really great people. But it's just just no chemistry. It's just no chemistry. They're great people. You want to respect them. But the hardest part is I remember I had to do a date. And from the time we left to the time we got back, it was 14 fucking hours. and the girl was great we hung out well she was amazing but like you know making out with somebody that you know that's not going to be there in the end it's just not a very fun thing and you feel like a total idiot and i you know it's good because a lot of the people they say it's part of the process but if it is you're kind of a sociopath if you don't feel terrible about it so yeah yeah but most of the people that go on this show are complete fucking sociopaths
1: so (laughs) Uh, so So winding down to the end, how did how did you feel at the end of the process?
2: You Drunk.
1: Know, you just like, yeah.
2: okay. <laughs> wasted. I like it. I like Literally. it. Literally, like I- like seventy-two days, probably straight. We drank every day. Jesus. And it was it was a tough go, but it's you know it was. I wouldn't have changed anything for for the world, but at the end, I was ready to go. I was ready to get the fuck out of there. I was ready. To not be manipulated by the people that you want to think you trust, which it doesn't happen in other TV, but reality TV, especially when you think like, oh my God, I'm the star of this show, blah, blah, blah. No, you're not the star. The producers are the star. You are the facilitator that they're going to try to get what they want out of you. So the hardest part was like being ready to leave because I really loved the process. But by the end, I was ready to get the fuck out of Dodge and get home, and, and uh, at the time, I was really, I really liked the girl that I picked, and we ended up dating for about two years after, and I was just really excited to get to see her, and not have people tell me how much she likes me, and oh my god, she said this about you, like, yeah, I get it, just, it's...
1: it's And have, and have some privacy, too, I can imagine it must be tough having the cameras on, you know,
2: 18 hours a day. Honestly, man, the toughest part is, like, you feel during the whole thing that you have no control over it you know what I mean because you're realizing while you're, you're like fuck man we just shot a week and that's only going to be a two hour show and when you watch the first episode then you get really scared because you're like what are they going to leave in what are they going to put out are, and are they going to show me like a funny nice guy or are they going to show me as a stiff board which I sadly got the stiff board um, yeah. I did but you know like the women in Canada liked it because it was just a very generically nice Canadian boy Yeah. Um, so I was very proud with how they showed me but i'm telling you dude it's just whomever tells me that it's like brad i would really like to you know like go on the show i just say you got to really think about it and you got to be in a mental place where you're okay with having no control over how you're going to look because it's not up to you but in my situation guys it's easy because i was the first so they had to protect me they're not gonna and i'll be honest like i was so drunk two of the nights and so was everybody (laughs) But you could you could show the stuff that was not kosher and like not that i was an asshole or anything like that but we all got wasted one night on a four-on-one date like wasted like we had two girls puking one girl making out with a bartender that we hired Come um, on. oh yeah and then one girl one girl wasted telling me a sad story upstairs and then trying to make out with me and i had about 15 espresso martinis and so, uh, you're in the you're in the bag at this point. Well, yeah. Well, once the girls got in the bag, I'm like, fucking, I'm going deep because I was never getting drunk on camera. And once you
1: saw the once you saw the one contestant make it out with the bartender, you're like, all right, that's my cue.
2: I, I fucking laughed so hard too because she was the one who went made quite far too because she was just fun to be around. But uh, no, we had we had this night right, and they're like, Brad, we just need one fucking more scene, one scene. We need you to pick up the rose in front of these girls and just say. You can't make a decision tonight. We're going to have to leave this to the, co- uh, to the uh, cocktail party. And I literally go up there and I was like, ladies, we're going to have to do this another time. And that's the best they got out of me. And that was like 17 takes. And the girls were asleep on the couch. And it was, come on. But, like, I'm sitting there before, I think it was like one of the last episodes i'm sitting there before they're being like oh my god these guys are gonna fuck me over i'm gonna look like a drunk asshole these girls are gonna look like they were there's one girl puking out of this penthouse (laughs) (laughs) but it was like we had the funnest time and like yeah that's stupid immature shit to do but you're on tv and they're paying you to drink like and have fun and party so it's like okay when you know because how many times are you gonna sit there and really talk about your feelings and i'm sorry to tell this to the 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 viewer, the one of your viewers that will be interested in The Bachelor (laughs) saying, you talk way too much about it and it becomes so inane by the end that you're like, can we talk about friends and family? No, because they're not going to use it.
0: Yeah. You just
2: have to keep talking about how one another is doing all the time. It's probably so repetitive.
0: Lose and change the script a little bit. So that that must have been a good one.
2: Well. And and I got I got great news from one producer too. He's like, you know, like if you just if you're not feeling the girl, but you're in the situation and you know it's going to get awkward. He's like, I know this sounds bad, but just pull her in and make out with her. And I was like, this is what a grown man's telling me to do when I'm getting paid for it. <laughs> all right, I'll do it. Fuck. I mean, my arm. Where's my arm? <laughs> listen, it was all consensual, so I mean, I got through it pretty well. But it's it's tough. Like you, you're having to navigate people's feelings in such a terrible way. Like you just end up feeling like if yeah. you don't feel like an asshole again, you're a sociopath. Like I felt terrible every week, and not because I just. I was gonna say I'm assuming most of the girls on the other side, like they're there. All right,
0: well let me ask: Are they there and they really think like you know I have a shot at this? Or is there some that it's the same? They think it's like
2: for the show. So my season, I don't know how it is on ever. I say five girls were really there because they wanted to find love. Five girls were just great girls and just really good personalities, and they weren't they're not two or one. And then there was 15 girls who were just like, okay, we're going to be on TV. Let's get the dress out and the personality. <laughs> and on the first night we're going to call everyone fucking bitches. And it's like, <laughs> Oh God, stir <laughs> <laughs> shit not make a
0: name of themselves.
2: But I, I'm telling you, man, it's like you get to a point during it where you become comfortable with the process. And that's where you look in the mirror and you're like, man, I'm this is fucked that I'm comfortable with this and comfortable with going in front of five girls and, making out with one of them in another room, telling the other one she's not from it's because let's be honest, like I'm a very average dude and I'm, I was very like understanding that like the girls when they see me, like I'm not going to be for them, all of them. But at that point with the first ever bachelor, they really could have put a, like a parking cone there. And the girls would have been like, he's so cute. Oh my God. (laughs) So I just call myself the parking cone of the first season. (laughs) I think you're being modest, man. (laughs) I'm sure that you're the the trailblazer there
0: and like, you know, I mean, you clearly got some good stories and obviously some good experience out of it because you forayed Uh, into,
2: you know, you're you're still doing this kind of thing. Guys, the stories I have from those 72 days could just sink ships. It was, uh, (laughs) I wish they showed the behind the scenes stuff because it's way funnier. Yeah. And it's way more like like, to see the girls, especially because me, it doesn't really matter, but see the girls in their element being like not just always fighting for a guy and being good human beings. It's it's a lot better than just seeing girls get trashed and being like,
1: You're a fucking bitch, hey
2: then me in the background like, Oh my god. I'm, kinda, I'm not gonna lie to you, that's kinda hot, you know? Right
0: <laughs> did that did that translate so I guess like to jump a little bit, did it translate right into going on was your was your first thing on the food network chop
2: No, the first so actually right? um I get like so you know you do like after your show you do junkets, so you know you go yeah. sit in a room, everyone comes in, they interview you and um, I actually went on breakfast television for my first, like main, because it was a city TV show. I went on breakfast television for my first main interview, and they really liked me. And they had a uh, a host go down that was sick, so I ended up temp hosting. And two months later, I got a contract. So I ended up working at breakfast television for three years or two years as their uh, co-host, and I did all their entertainment. So my first actually gig was because of an interview that I had from The Bachelor. Oh shit. Yeah.
1: Uh, so how was it different from being on the, I guess you were a, a contestant side or not really a contestant, but to be from participating in a reality show to being more of a host?
2: Well, I was terrible. I was so bad. Um, <laughs> the personality stuff, I started off really raw. So I would do segments and it was just personality stuff. But Reading the prompter and stuff that people are like, oh man, you can fucking read. Like reading the prompter, doing a live throw on TV, even doing a comeback from commercial break, like welcome back to breakfast television. And it's it's so different when when there's a crowd around you. I can do anything. But sitting in a TV studio, just looking at a camera, reading the prompter and a, pretending that there's a you know four hundred thousand people watching it, It took me like eighteen months not to be fucking awful. I, mean, I was so bad. But they just kept me because I, I was goofy and I had a good personality, and it really allowed me to um, like grow my production skills because I had none. Yeah, I was a guy. I oh, was gonna say, yeah, you couldn't have been that bad if you were there for three years. Well, they, t- they, I was, I got lucky with a group of people who really liked having a, a younger, goofy, funny person on, and someone they didn't have to because t- it's news traffic, weather, laugh and leave, right in the morning. Yeah, and so once they would get, I was the laugh and leave part, so. It'll like without breakfast television, I would never have had a job after ever again, because you can't just walk in, out of the blue, go on Chopped, go on any of these shows, and just host a show. You have to have so much technical skill that I had none of. When you say technical skill, what exactly would it be? That like reading the prompt and that kind of stuff, that, or is it more to just understanding simple things like you know, your floor director giving you a 15 second back from break and getting those nerves when five seconds hits down, not jumping on your words, slowing down. I'm telling you because when you're reading a prompter, somebody else is turning the words, right? So if they're turning too fast and you start jumping in your head, you're going to fuck it up. I swear to God, for the first three months, I messed up one word on every throw that I ever did. And I was like, I'm not going to get better at this. And then suddenly it just becomes something that becomes innate. But TV production is you have to like, it's one of the craziest things ever because there is no, you can go to school for it, but doesn't mean you're going to get a job. Then when you get the job and it's live TV, your TV production will still, I've seen people still fail because it's like, oh my God, people are fucking watching me now. Yeah. And so I just kind of had that fight or flight moment and I was able to fly through it and not get drowned out by the mistakes I was making. Well, I guess you need a little bit of, of, of like
0: luck, skill, everything, right? To get on, I mean, you have to have, I mean, they're not going to, I don't want to sound rude, but they don't want to put someone good-looking onto you. But then they also, like, you want someone with a bit of experience, I guess. But then, like, most people don't have three. Most people didn't go to school and have all these things. So I guess you got to compromise something so you're learning that that thing you don't know. So I guess for years, like, you were on TV before, but you know have that
2: production aspect. So... No, I mean, one one interview for the one touchdown you ever had in the CFL doesn't prepare you <laughs> to be on live TV for the fucking rest of your life. But uh, no, it's, I was lucky to get in with good people who would stay with me after and do my production work. And then they understood that if they had, you know, what they call these chat segments, that I would fly in the chat segments because I can think off the top of my head and come up with an argument. But it's the production aspect that when I walked into Chop my first day and stood on the T and I had 120 people looking back at me being like okay like let's go kid and I never nobody had never known that I'd never run my own show they didn't know that I had no TV production knowledge and to do that and then have that 3 years at Breakfast Television that was really like that was when I knew I could do this and do it at a high level or at a moderate level okay with most Canadians. <laughs> What's your favorite part about uh, about Chop Oof!
1: Was it just testing out all the food? Just to be beans? honest with you, it
2: was it was just getting to know the the judges. To be honest with you, because most of your day is standing beside them while they're sitting down, and even though that you know our appetizers appetizer's twenty minutes, our entree thirty minutes, our desserts thirty minutes, even though those are real times, you're spending fourteen hours standing next to these people in the other times. So sitting next to Mark McEwen, who I was terrified for, who is actually one of the biggest fucking beauties of all time. <laughs> just literally like a guy's guy who you could tell fucking played chinny or junior b back in the day <laughs> uh you could tell he's had a couple clacks removed by a high sauce but um no but then you have like lynn crawford and sucer lee and i just really fell in love with you know talking and shop and i love when people like when i was on bt i did all the entertainment right so i got to speak to all these uh movie stars who unlike I'm not enthralled with Will Smith, but I'm enthralled with Christian Bale. And, like, when I get to talk to them about their their craft, I love that, talking to the best people about that. So when I got to sit with chefs and talk about them and what they're doing and then go to their restaurants and see, it was just – that was the best part about the whole experience was the chefs that you meet as, as the judges. I'll just give you a whole new respect
0: for what they do, too, because, I mean, you know, like Mark McHugh, all these guys, they have restaurants in Toronto. You can go any time. But – I guess you get to see like kind of their thought process and when they put this stuff together and what, how it came to be and all that. Well,
2: and as an entrepreneur, I always like to understand how they got to be where they are. And, you know, Mark McEwen, who basically runs the culinary industry in downtown Toronto, as far as probably the most successful monetary restaurateur out there, um, you know, he started with a loan on his first restaurant and he told me he put his head down for three years. He picked his head up, opened the next place, put his head down for three years, and you just wash her and repeat on that and to understand that I think a lot of the next generation they see the the outcome, but they don't see all the hard work. And to understand that like you're just not gonna be even the people who are Instagram famous, you know how fucking hard their life is? Like to, to you know, the, the production aspect. So when people see people who are really successful, they don't they don't see the the immense amount of hard work in any Um, an area. And that's a generalization, but I was one of those guys who just saw Mark as this fucking kingpin of Canada culinary and didn't realize, fuck, this guy put in serious man hours for almost 22 years before he kind of started easing back. And he's still an animal at all his places.
1: Well, I'm sure that gave you that appreciation. Like, you were telling us how you were flipping fries at your burger place, right? I'm sure without meeting him, you might not have been doing that.
2: So Mark came and surprised me the fourth day that we were open and he saw me behind there and he like you know we had we had a lineup of about 50 deep because we just opened and people saw him walk in and they were like just shocked why is this guy coming to this little fucking burger place and he pulled me out and he said you know i'm just very proud of you and it wasn't he said it's not about the restaurant and it's not about opening your first place he was just proud that he saw me behind there with the guys doing the work because you know when you like we talked about before earlier when people see you, they see the ego that they want you to have, but they don't know how you are in your own head. So they want me to be this pretentious douchebag that was on the bachelor. And, you know, I'm a host on chops. I probably think I'm the fucking man, but for me, it's important not for them to see me cooking fries, but for my team to see me behind there, cleaning the floors, cleaning the garbage, uh, you know, rinsing down the garde manger in order for them. And then when Mark came and told me I was doing the right thing, I knew, you know, it's a guy who's done it all, so. A little bit of gratification that makes it, like, kind of, you that know, a little bit of satisfaction,
0: a little boost, like, okay, I'm doing the right thing, and I'm on the right path.
2: Yeah, well, it was the first time that I realized success wasn't a monetary thing in my life. You know, you come in the CFL, and you're like, oh, fuck, I'm putting all this effort in, I'm not getting paid. You go on a Bachelor, and I got a good paycheck, but it still wasn't, like, what you can retire on. I go on Breakfast Television, it's a very blue collar salary. I go to Chopped, I get a really good salary for the first time, I open this <coughs> restaurant, and it wasn't the money from Chopped. It wasn't opening the restaurant. It was Mark McEwen telling me how proud he was that I was behind there doing fries and being part of my team that made me understand what success was for the first time. That's good. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, I, like you're, I'm i just
1: thinking, I'm like, man, that's, for people listening, that's a, if there's a take-home lesson
2: from this podcast. Like, that's it. Well, dude, fuck, we, you know, we live, like, we live in Toronto, the most, um, egotistical places that you can be in Canada because downtown, you know, you know it. I mean, if I, if I'm a, if I'm a a guy in my mid thirties, who's, um, who's working, let's say, let's say I'm working as a teacher, very respectful job, fucking they're the hardest working people in the world. They get no credit, but people wouldn't look at you the same way as if you're a TV guy, just because of the status and clout that comes with it. Whereas what is your success level based on? It's all ego for everybody because it's like oh you know he's seen there and oh my god he has people asking him on the street who he is like that must be amazing and you're like no the amazing part is uh, where we live now is if you can understand what's important to you and for me that moment was i can make the most money in the world i can make no money in the world but just being on that team atmosphere having the ability to help people out in their lives that was the moment where i was like look, I, i wish i could do this forever Cause like when your employee goes home and they can pay their paycheck because of a business that you've started, it's the most gratifying thing you can ever have. Well, to your point too, but before you said a lot of people don't
0: see the hard work that goes (laughs) into it on that stuff, but also like being an entrepreneur, starting a business, a lot of people don't see the, how many lives that you like directly impact as the business owner, as the person who has to make sure like money goes into their pocket in a day. Cause like you got to inherit that risk. It's your business. You got to make sure they're getting paid. There's a roof over their head. And a lot of people don't see that side. That's not the glamorous side, Right. Getting yeah. the attention, being a superstar uh, TV guy who owns a restaurant now—that's cool. But there's a lot of stress, and, and you know, keeping the business running and, and making all these hard yeah. decisions.
2: The most the, the most amount of stress I've ever endured is restaurants. But in the same respect, we took a very different approach because I didn't want to run this like a restaurant. We actually uh, nobody at our place made minimum wage. Uh, the the end up after tips, average salary was over 20 bucks for everybody an hour, which is unheard of in the restaurant industry. Yeah. We actually had employee of the month benefit for 250 extra cash a month. We had all these incentives. Our, my employees were the happiest. And the hardest part about this whole COVID thing is, you know, in the respect that these restaurants might not come back in actuality. It's not about the restaurant for me. And it's not about whatever. It's it's literally by the time we left, I was in the best stride of having a great time with my team. We were doing things well. Everyone was, every and I don't mean me because I wasn't, but everyone was making money except for me, but I'm okay with that. And my team really fucking loved being there. And my chef loved being there. And I, you know, because of him, I realized just how important it was. So then when you take that away from me, it's not taking the money. It's not taking the restaurant. It's not taking the, the customers that come in. It's like, you know, I still have that WhatsApp chat where you're seeing these people who... And not to get too off side here, but, you know, what we're seeing on TV is not COVID. We're seeing the people who are getting through it. And we're seeing people protest. And we're seeing the effects. But we're not seeing any of the people who are losing their jobs interviewed. We're not seeing the people who can't make their rent. We're not seeing the people who are really fucking struggling right now because of this. And 90% of those were people like my people. you know. And So as much as we can do and the government can do, it's the saddest part is not having that stability that they had when I could provide that because that was egotistically my favorite part of the job.
0: Well, now it's kind of out of your control too. So like you probably want even now you want to help and like, I guess, you know, Kind of hands are tied as, as the business owner and like you're kind of seeing it but you can't do as much down because you gotta like you said at the beginning
2: you gotta kind of sit and wait because we don't know what's coming exactly and, and the, the the point is is to have a ship at the end for everyone to come back on and not drown it during this this storm so it's like trust me when i say that like i don't say that to sound good to people but like my my other chef we still zoom once a week because he's still my only salary employee because i'm not letting my main guy who runs my business if we come back go down. Um, and it's sad man it's like when we opened it at assembly seff's hall uh when we opened at assembly we we you know qsr was the was the future of food two years ago yeah and qsr is not a thing anymore and can't be a thing because how are we going to do that with social distancing we can't fit the 150 people i need to turn over an hour at lunch into the into my place with distancing protocol so it's We're having a lot of interesting talks about what the fuck do we do right now? How do we turn this around? Are we being too aggressive? Are we not being aggressive enough? You know, how do we, just like you guys are acclimatizing with not being with one another when you're doing your podcast, How? what the fuck, what is the next thing for us? And nobody knows. Yeah, that's the toughest part, that
1: unknown. It's not like they said, you know what, let's keep social distancing. By July 1st, this is all done and let's go back into the way, like, it's there's no normal there's or at least as we knew it for the foreseeable future like until there's a
2: vaccine and who knows when that's going to be right well this is the thing is i, I see everybody like there's protesters there's people staying at home there's everything in between i'm like listen do whatever the fuck you want to do with your life i'm going to conduct myself on my own you know basis on my moral compass but like the unknown is what kills people and people are getting mad because they're like well, wow, you said 14 days and then you said flatten the curve and what is it and it's just You know, my dad's a senator, so I get the updates pretty much every day about what's going on. And the sad fact is just there is no right answer. There's no way to help everybody. And it sucks. And as much as we're doing in this situation, I mean, I've done some charity stuff and I think everybody else is trying to put their hat on and do as much as they can. But like, there is no end point to this unless your moral compass tells you that you want to be outside and not worry about it. And that's up to you. I don't give a shit. My moral compass is that my parents are 70 and if somebody else was neglectful and got my parents sick, I'd donkey kick the fuck out of them, you know, and that's just the yeah. absolute truth is, and so my moral compass keeps me inside. But when you're trying to tell a mass group of people what the right thing is, there's no right thing. It's just what's right for you and what, as long as you're not affecting everybody else's life. All you can do, right?
0: yet I mean, you got to hope people are going to act rational. It's not necessarily the case. So all we can do is do our part,
2: kind of sit tight and. Well, that's the crazy part, right? What's yeah. rational to you is not what's rational to me or to somebody sure. else. So sure. what I see through my lens might be fucking clear as day, but to somebody else who's flying the flag upside down, it might be clear as day to them too. Yeah, very good yeah. point. No, it's very true. Very but true. even though if you fly the flag up down and I, uh, upside down and I see you, I, I want to punch you straight up cold. Because I can deal with a lot of stuff that's going on. You protest, that's all good. I'm, you're allowed to do that. But the whole upside down flag thing, I just want to hurt people.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's... Uh, people, I think it now because it's gone on so long, people are really start to, starting to like lose their mind and lo- losing their sense of like the normal, if you will. I mean, hell, like I remember joking with Ricky, like at one point in this thing, I was like, man, it, it feels like it's been like this long since we last saw each other. I thought it was like two weeks or three weeks. Like, dude, he's like, we've been locked in for like eight weeks. What are you talking about? I'm like,
1: yeah, it's, 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 it's eight sense of reality well no and george was when we got back from we were in scottsdale right before all this happened for my brother's bachelor party and we get back and me and george are talking he's like yeah i'm gonna go to the office i'm like george you haven't self-isolated for 14 days he goes what are you talking about i'm like we got back like eight days ago he's like man it felt like three weeks i'm like yeah because there's no sense of time anymore i feel like every day is a wednesday it's not a monday because you know life could be a lot worse but it's definitely like there's no there's no such thing as a weekend anymore I'm like, I'm waking up every day at eight o'clock regardless. Like there's no, I, I don't see my friends. I don't get the party. You're not going out to eat, drink, do th- fun things. So basically it's just, we're on a permanent Wednesday
2: for the foreseeable future. Well, and that's, and that's the hard thing too, is you're sitting here and you're trying to like, I tried to do the whole, like uh, set up a routine thing. And then within two weeks, I'm like, yeah, I'm in shape. And I'm like, but what am I fucking doing all this working out <laughs> and like, you know, bettering myself? Am I really trying to learn Spanish during, you know, COVID-19? And then I went complete opposite, just was like, I'm telling you, I put on like 15 pounds in three weeks candy every day. <laughs> but the days went by so slow and you're like, what the, you know, you're on the other end of it. So whatever is relatively normal to keep you comfortable, like that's what I'm, I would suggest to anybody. Cause listening to like going on fucking Instagram and looking at memes about how you should be changing your life right now, it's too much pressure. Like. Yeah. Yeah, I've already lost two restaurants and I'm, you know, getting sued by somebody else. Like I don't need, to, you know, to, to really bring up a uh, Rosetta stone here and get Italian <laughs> done for my
0: trip to Venice in six years.
2: And why do
0: you say that? I was the same way at the beginning. I was, I, I mean, I like to read and all this stuff normally. So I was like, perfect. I'm going to sit at home and read a bunch of books and like get all this shit done and work out. And that was great for like a month. I was like three weeks of super productive. Then it started to wane a little bit. And then my birthday was a little while ago and like, Ricky some of my other pals bought me this like vintage candy machine that I went like on Instacart ordered a bunch of candy I'm like let me make it look good I won't eat it the machine compounded it I destroyed it. I get like <laughs> 10 pounds in a week I was like dude I was like two months ago I was like talking about I'm gonna change my habits change my life all this stuff learn Spanish. Now I'm staring at this machine like, what is wrong with me? It's like it's just such a roller coaster this this last like two months, man. It's, listen,
2: uh, listen. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge I'm a huge proponent of mental health. I don't talk about it too much because it's my own personal journey, and I'm I'm one of those until you figure it out, just keep it to yourself type of guy. That's my prerogative. But I'm telling you, you realize in this situation why they fucking send people who commit the most heinous crimes into solitary. Because my biggest fear of this is not losing my restaurants, it's not being broke, it's not having to find a new place to live, it's not even having to find a new career. It's like, the way the government's setting this up is that we will not be, uh, whether you believe it or not, we'll not be finished social distancing until there's a vax. That's what they've said. Yeah. So, and the chances are, if you talk to a lot of med techs that or med professionals, that there's not going to be a vax for a long time, because it's just how they work. So my biggest fear about this whole thing was the the loss of social interactions with people, the loss of go like I was talking to one of my buddies and we were talking about 2014 when we were at Real Sports watching, you know the the you know the Olympic gold medal hockey game, and then a concert we went to and seeing all the the best times of my life happened to be shared experiences with all my buddies. Yeah. So. You know, as much as as nice it is seeing you guys and seeing my friends on fucking Zoom, it's like I, you know, I'm a, I, even though I'm a guy, I need to get out and I need to hug my friends yeah. and yeah. fucking tell them that I love them and figure out a way to not take advantage of their relationships moving forward and be more present with them.
1: Yeah, Brad, I got a funny story too. Even so, we we got shirts made for the for our podcast. We're gonna we're gonna get you one. So <laughs> me and George, uh, we we made a whole bunch of little packages, right? And I said, you know what, I'm gonna go deliver them to people because. I haven't seen anybody right i'm I'm staying with my parents during this time so you know again they're 60 60 plus so i'm not hanging out with people because you don't want to put them at risk so i went i went out and i delivered these packages a couple weeks ago to maybe about five or six of like our closer friends and i'm there i drop it off on their front door they come outside and we're standing you know eight feet apart and it was so bittersweet it's like i'm so happy that i get to see some of the people that i love Just want to fucking grab them. It's like, yeah, I just want to give you a hug. I just want to cheers. I want to, you know, shake your hand. It's like, I walk up, I put the package on the floor, I take five steps back, ten steps back, and we're standing in there on the middle of the street chatting. I'm like, man, I just want to be invited in. I want to have a drink. Like, I don't even like beer that much. You know, I'll crush a couple beers just to hang out with my buddies. Like, yeah, I don't even, I
2: don't even drink anymore. I'll, I'll fucking smoke a whole bottle of wine if you just let me in. (laughs) (laughs) It's like I I just want to be around people it's my mom's birthday in uh, two days and i was thinking about driving back to montreal just this year and i got a new dog so introduce her to my pup but then i'm like what am i gonna do am i gonna drive five hours and sit there on the lawn like am i gonna be able to stand in front of my mother and my father and not go up to them and fucking hug them you know like yeah. but that's i mean listen that's a scary part of it but it is actuality and i'd rather have them a lot here for a lot longer but yeah the scary thing to me is and i hope other people are worried about it too is not the money it's not what you have it's more just getting back to being better people to one another and understanding how what relationships were like fucking important to us and the ones that we can kick aside too that were just meaningless yeah. well, and, and the thing too everyone says you know like we're,
0: we're even though we're more connected like before all this we're more connected but we're more disconnected because mm-hmm. everyone's on their phone all the time you're walking on head down and walk across the street like you don't realize all those times you were at your buddy's place just or anywhere sitting on your phone or having to capture the moment at, the, at that Raptors game or least game on your phone versus being there and enjoying it and like talking. Like, what do you think about this? Talking to the person sitting next to you. It's crazy because now, now you have all the time to do all that. We can sit on our phone all day and do all these things that we like to do when we when we can do them before. But now you're like, shit, I took advantage of all this time I had before and now I can't.
2: It, right. It's hard, right? Well, every, <laughs> yeah, because now we're right. We're being forced to be in the present in this isolation but it's not the present that we want. So now our presence is being locked in on this fucking screen to see what all of our friends are doing. When, in fact, when we're out of this, hopefully we go back to being like, okay, put the fucking phone down and enjoy being here yeah. and enjoy these, you know. I got lucky uh, with one of my friends because he had to come live with me for a couple of days because of his baby being born. And I mean, I literally sat next to him and I said, listen, if you're gonna come and live with me, I'm gonna have to fucking give you a hug. And he's like, yeah, sure, no worries. And it was the- <laughs> I I got lucky. I had six great days with one of my best friends before he got to go in. Um, But it it made me almost, he left and I kind of broke down a little bit. And I hadn't the entire time. I just broke down because I was so sad that like, I got all these beautiful people in my life that maybe didn't know that they were that important to me beforehand. They knew that, they know I love them, but not to the point where it's like, you know, how much they mean and how much they've affected my life. Because, you know, I I tend to be just the, oh, Brad, he's fine on his own type guy, you know?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Brad, to to wrap up the COVID talk and and move a little bit forward, what's what's next for you? You know, once I guess whenever this stuff does end, you know, new T more more TV shows. Obviously, we hope that the the restaurants will still be here.
2: But what's what's next for you? Yeah, so I mean, we're we're gonna shoot season two of my uh, my latest show, Big Bake, which was a real big success. We sold to the UK and Australia and. Um, For a Canadian show that's amazing and and so uh, it's been pushed from May to August, which looks like we'll be able to shoot it in August Um, And then yeah, I mean to be honest with you right now is focusing on are the restaurants going to be there and you know I don't feel bad saying it's less than a coin flip chance that they will be Um, I'll try my fucking hardest to make sure but you know This is a great time if you're not being pessimistic because I'm looking at what we can do the, the staff that I did have and my chef that I have and saying, what can I do? What can I flip? What's the next business? What can I put back? So we are looking for, if it's not the restaurant, other ways of, of being, uh, especially with my, my chef, Chris, even if it's not food, he's such a great kid, um, that I want to be in his business and whatever he does. But
1: yeah, it's interesting. You say that we had one of our, our previous guests on, he did a lot of marketing and, and promotions with nightclubs and restaurants. And Talk he said that marks. this time, Oof. yeah, so he was saying a lot of his his revenue of marketing came from nightclubs and, and restaurants. And he's thinking, you know, prior to this, he needed those restaurants in order to survive for his marketing business to survive. And now he's learning to adapt and create new sources of income through other like sectors because, again, we don't know what's going to happen with restaurants and nightclubs out in, in yeah. the future, right? So it's interesting you say that because it's kind of that sink or
2: swim mentality. Listen, I, I know what kind of entrepreneur I am. I'm not the one who's gonna create the wheel. Do you know what I mean? But I will okay. take the wheel and try to redesign it to what I'm good at, um, which is what I did with the burger place and then my healthy place. Um, but you have to, like, we don't know what that is yet. So what I'm looking to is looking to those entrepreneurs, those, those leaders to, to understand and to try out what they think are the right methods. And then we can see because, again, going on the, the government's thing, which is that we're all going to be distancing until there's a vax. Restaurants are not going to be the same then until there's a vax because you're not going to tell a 40-seat restaurant that they can only have 10 people in there and they have to turn them over eight times a night now instead of their three. And then it's like, how do you pay rent when you're, yeah. Come on and fucking think of it. Restaurants are bad because their overhead is bad, but think of a bar, okay? Think about Underground that just went down. One of the yeah, greatest man. bars in Toronto who probably has 94 shirtless pics of me throwing vodka sodas down my throat. Yeah. Um, they they were like fifty-three grand a month rent. That's not overhead. That's just their rent. Without their bills, without yeah. their supplies, without their salaries. How the fuck, when you go under, are you going to afford $200,000 after three months? You can't. Yeah, you can't. You're, and you're the not going to Cro- business. rock, right? a business owner, I'm sad to say this, but like at some point you have to think about yourself because you're the one getting paid last. So are you going to take on all this debt until they run, which is what the government's making us do. They're making us take debt in order for our businesses not to bankrupt because a forgivable loan is great, right? But the $40,000 forgivable loan, I have to sell $500,000 in order to pay that loan back. It's not a one-year process, you know? So, um, but no, I'm going to be. Pe- I'm going to be pessimistic. I'm going to be optimistic and and choose to believe that there's smarter people out there than me that are going to figure this out, and then I can coattail what they're doing. And if not, I'll figure something else out, and then I'll hire some of the people that I had back because they were such great fucking people. That's awesome. So. I can- all you all you can do man is is literally because like i've had so many fucking people be like oh my god aren't you sad that the restaurants might be there i'm like well, what do you want me to say or like you're looking for <laughs> me to say like oh my god it's gonna fucking suck i'm gonna lose four hundred
1: thousand thousand dollars blah blah blah
2: like no you have to commit in your mind to that's gone and if it's there it's gonna we're gonna make it the best it can be but in my mind they're gone that's what I have to settle with. And I'll think of the next thing. And if I come back and things open in a month and I can turn it around and still make it so that we're making you know, money and being able to pay everyone, I'll do it. But I just don't see that as something that's going to happen within the next year.
0: That's well, a good way to look at it. And you have to. So it's not like you're staying right now, like, okay, sick, I'm going to get back to work. I'm going to make my money back. I'll be okay. Just if you look at that and then you get, and that reality hits you then
2: too, like that could be a, going back to mental health, that could be a huge detriment. It could weigh well, on you, right? Like. Put it this way, right? If you're going to date a girl and in the first week you've uh, broken up and it's just you're not jiving together with her and then suddenly she says things and you're thinking about how great she is and then you go back together and you're back together with her and everything's great. And then you suddenly say, I'm going to marry this girl. Well, now anything less than marrying the girl is limiting your expectations to something that will make you pissed off. Right. So if I'm looking at my restaurants as in the same vein, if I go right now and say, I'm going to come back, I'm going to be bigger and better than ever. Well, all I'm doing is setting myself up for failure right now. Whereas if I say, you know what, I'm going to wait till the moment's right. And then I'm going to make the educated decision that's best for everybody. Because at the end of the day, if I bankrupt myself in order to get my staff back, well, then I'm no good because now I'll bankrupt myself. That th- then I'll get guys who could have found another job fo- focused on me. So my like level of expectation is, if they're there when I'm back and it makes sense, we're gonna fucking kill it. But if we're not and it's not there, then I'm not gonna set my expectation level up for it to be Yeah. So, Cause restaurant industry is hard enough as is. Yep.
0: Honestly, it's gotta be one of the toughest, especially like even Toronto. And like the, the last few years, you've seen like it's been a boom, especially like these small shops that have like a small little place that opened up, little passion projects yeah. or ideas. And that's been one of the great things about this city. Like they're popping up always. But Unfortunately, now it's like it's so un- it's such an unpredictable time that I guess you have to take that view. You
2: can't look uh, at it like well, it's gonna go
0: back to normal. King Street's gonna be packed again because then you're just setting yourself up for disappointment.
2: And, and yeah, yeah. yeah, what's and you know what the crazy thing is is that like it, it, the timing was I was literally seven days away from signing two more leases on two massive restaurants. So we were, because we were going to expand because we were doing so well, we were going to set up two on King West. And then right across from my building here on a River City project, I was going to do a a massive food project. And when this hit, I was literally days away from signing what could have been my, like I'd be in a grave right now. I'd be so owing people money. So the restaurant industry is so tough, but what this has really made us do is realize not just the restaurant industry, but like we were living as a society, $2 Every dollar we made, we were spending two dollars and forty cents. Like, hopefully, at some point, we're going to realize maybe we got to save a little on yeah. this one. Because so, like without COVID, I would have been th- even more egregiously fucked. Like and just take it that way. I would have signed myself into millions of dollars of leasing that I couldn't have gotten out of and been sued over. Um. So I take it as like a get like a blessing that way. But at the same time, it's like like you said, what is Rick? What's the new normal? Because yep. it is, is normal even the word that we're going to use. And I just, I'm very grateful that this happened because for me, it's like, I want to come back and I want to change the way that I did a few things. But I just hope people don't want to rush back and get back to what their lives were before, because it's not happening. It's it's just not, it's not going to be the same. Yep. Yeah. It's almost like a reset. And I like, listen, I'm a little bit of a hippie. I've gone through a lot of stuff, but if you look at this, the way that, that people do when it's when it's more society based not socialist based but society based like I said I just hope people are missing their friends missing their families not missing the people that they spent a lot of time around when they didn't want to be around them and really reorganizing where they're going to give their love attention and time because that's what fucking at the end of the day when we're sitting here all isolated if we're not in a relationship that we really love or one that we really respect we're all sitting here wishing we were around someone else. And that's just that's the basis of it.
0: Yep. True. Very true. was a great point, yeah. No? Crazy. Really, th- really makes you think about what you took for back in the day. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. Times, I,
2: well, and, and like I'll, to cut off this COVID thing, I would have been almost happier had I failed at restaurants and they were taken away from me. Do you know what I mean? I would have been happy if I opened those two restaurants, they didn't get good reviews and then they closed down on my own volition and I know Brad, you know, you didn't do it right and this is what you did wrong but because we were doing so well and we were you know we could afford to pay our employees a way above average we can afford to incentivize them send them out for dinner and then for that to be taken away from something that's out of our control that's what really sucks and that's where you got to throw your hands up and say fuck like i did everything i did it by the book i paid everyone correctly i didn't fuck anybody over uh, i did this the right way we were successful but this took it away and it's almost a harder hit because you're like fuck i did it right what you know but you- yeah, it's not in my control. So let it go. Yeah, like
0: it's like getting like a hurricane came through something to wipe it out. Like it's just completely you have
2: to throw your hands up. You can't do anything about it. Which is crazy. We've all been on the rink and caught a fucking puck in the nuts. Did that guy need to slap <laughs> it there? No, it's not his fault. You just got to take it and roll on. Yeah,
1: but you're the one that got hit. Yeah, no, I, I hear you, buddy. I
2: took I'm... I took a puck in each nut individually.
1: <laughs> oh my! I, hey Brad, I was a goalie, so I took a couple more. <laughs> and uh, then I then took. And...
2: I took yeah. a couple too many times. Yeah, I took one one off each nut, then one off the mushroom head, and then I was I was about to tap out, and I could not That's it. Eh? Yeah. That's it. You're like, that's it. I'm done hockey, going to football. Uh, but, <laughs> no, no, I'm done. I'm done restaurants. I uh, no. But listen, guys, it's just like if I can impart anything on anybody listening, it's just you can live whatever life you want to live as long as it's in your own prerogative and you're doing what you want to do. But at the end of this, I hope everyone takes this reset and kind of approaches life with a lot more love to it because I think it's something especially in downtown Toronto drastically missing.
0: Yeah. Well, well that's pretty, of, and that's actually usually how we kind of end it. We always ask our guests like, what's one piece of advice you'd give to like your younger self, if you will. Oh, so sure. I, don't, That don't. that's your advice unless you have something else you'd give to like to a young Brad
2: or Don't don't drink and listen and do everything your father tells you. <laughs> i would have been uh, a fucking legend had i just listened to my father and not just been like
0: man i'm gonna do it all on my own and fuck you dad
2: oh exactly <laughs> both know
0: exactly how that is i mean we work with the, with the family each of us with our own uh you know we know how that is
1: yeah uh brad um, one more actually um if there was a movie about your life tomorrow or you know about everything you've done who would you want to star as you
2: That's a tough one. So I am like a movie-holic, right? I watch at least a movie a day, even before this. And then uh, when I worked at Breakfast Television, I did three years of interviewing movie stars, which is like my dream. And which you can seems... pick
1: any actor from any period of time, too. Like, you can go pick someone from the 60s if you want.
2: Well, the guy who would be most like me is Ryan Reynolds. Uh, oh, good one. I can see that. But he's not. He's way too good-looking and jacked. Uh <laughs> We need someone. Hey, does, don't put yourself soft. down like that. You're you're a stud over here, buddy. We need we need someone a little softer, a little more round. <laughs> to be honest with you, like my favorite actor is Leo. Like he's he's just my generation. He's in every movie that I fucking love. And if Leo DiCaprio played me, uh, he'd feel really bad. Actually, you know what, guys? The, the greatest accomplishment of my life was in 2013. I was Hello Canada's Rising Star of the Year, and I was beside Brad Pitt. And I posted about it, and I was like, you know, the highlight of my career, Rising Star next to Brad Pitt, the fucking lowest point of Brad Pitt's career, being next to me in anything. But Leo or Brad Pitt, just because those are the guys whose movies I I are tender. Uh, like, yeah. Who doesn't want to be Brad Pitt in Fight Club?
1: Oh, 100%, well, man.
0: Never mind, even uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Brad Pitt in that movie,
2: is that guy's so sick. He's, he's well, he's... And if you've... Uh, So I have one of my good, like I lived in LA for three years, I have good friends that work in the industry and people that work with both of those guys, they just say the exact same things. Like if you're in their group, they treat you really well and they're good people. And that's at the end of the day, it's like, you meet a lot of people, especially when I was interviewing movie stars that just let you down. And having interviewed both those guys, they're just, they're just solid, really excited to be multimillionaires and sleeping with every girl they could find. Me, I'm like, I'm like a one-woman guy, and I can't even like, uh, you know, if you were to put me in public in front of them, I'd be like, uh, <laughs> Leo actually hit cool. on my ex-girlfriend one time. That was the biggest. Uh, I was like, wow. <laughs> she she actually came to me and she, I was like being a bitch one day, and she's like, oh my god, like, how can you do that? She doesn't talk like that. Yeah. She's like, why are you mad at me? I-, I fucking didn't go home with Leo for you. I'm like, yes. <laughs> 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 like I turned down a date with Leo for you. And I'm like, Oh my God, that's going on my fucking resume.
1: <laughs> uh, Brad, this is, uh, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much. Just such yeah, a good, um, such a fun conversation. I'm excited to see everything that happens once this is all done. I know there's some exciting things for you and, um, we'll definitely
2: stay tuned on uh, the big bake. Yeah, boys. If, uh, if you need anything in the future, you just let me know. I'm happy you guys are doing this. Yeah. It's Appreciate been a lot of fun for us. Yeah. Cowboys. Oh, but yeah, Thank Brad,
1: again, thanks a lot. And uh, I guess that's it for today.
2: Yeah, buddy. Anytime you need me, guys, just let me know. We'll do. We'll do. Thanks a lot. You like to drink and to smoke to take away the pain. And I don't remember all the mistakes and every high got alone. No one thing. you're not alright. I'm not alright.